0: That's an intro. Good morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. Uh, I am one of the executive pastors here, and we're starting a series that I have been waiting 10 months to start, so I'm really excited about it. And I've had Red Bull, so I'm really, really excited about it. We're starting this series called Outdated, where we're going to be going through a portion of Ephesians that about 500 years ago was named the Hastafel, or the house table, that talks about the practical applications of all the stuff that we've read in Ephesians for five chapters or so, and then gets it uh, down to this application level of what these these high, lofty doctrinal things actually mean when it comes to -to day-to-day life in our house and in our relationship and in our, our marriage if you're married, uh, and in other human relationships that we need to somehow figure out what, what it looks like to live this life in a broken, distorted, sinful world and somehow live out the gospel with real people, which once you start living with real people, you begin to realize it's actually really hard to do. And so uh, we're going to open up the Bible and look at this, and I'm excited about it because I love application. I, I mean, I, I like to study the Bible, and I like doctrine, and I like all of those things, but I really love application because I want to know how is it going to change the things that I do and the way that I look at things and the way that I treat people and, and how I might view uh, someone in my life. I, I want the Bible to change me because deep down I have this realization that I am not there yet. Amen? amen. You all said amen that Daniel's not there yet. I hear you. <laughs> I agree. That's why I need... The Bible. That's why I need it. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Um, One of the things over the course of the last couple years that has really um, taken up a lot of my time and attention as I've thought about it is a a verse in the Bible that talks about being known for my reasonableness. I should want to be known for my reasonableness, meaning uh, I shouldn't want to be known for my hot takes, but rather for my reasonableness. Now, the thing that's wonderful about that is when you meet someone who has a little bit of wisdom, but particularly is just very reasonable, very considerate, very, looks at both sides of issues and, and thinks about them as thoughtful and asks questions, you tend to really enjoy conversations with that person, but that's not what gets clicks online. Have you noticed that? Nobody clicks on the reasonable title or the reasonable video. No one wants the reasonable, t- they want the hot take, they want the controversial thing. That gets all the clicks. And if you don't believe me, go look at our YouTube page of sermons. The ones that get all the clicks are the ones where we put a title on, where it's just incredibly like questionable or divisive or even salacious. Those get three times the views. If you put a reasonable time, so if I called today, today we're going to look at the role of men and women in the Bible. If if we looked at if I we just said a biblical perspective of the role of men and women, no one would click on it. But if I call it, should she make me a sandwich? Everyone will click on it. And I even asked, I was in my small group, and I brought it up as a joke, and, and, and the, the young wife that's in the group says to me, yeah, I would click on that. Because I'd want to know what you, were, like, what you would say. And I was like, I'm changing the title. I messaged Nate. I was like, change the title. Call it, should she make me a sandwich? So I'm going to answer the question today. Should she make me a sandwich, biblically? I'm just up here making friends. (laughs) Marriage is a unique human relationship. It's unique in all other relationships in all of human life and all of history. There is no other human relationship that is intended to be like marriage. The only parallel that we have to the relationship in marriage is our relationship with Jesus. There's no other human relationship that we see in the Bible that was intended to be this close or to operate in essentially the same fashion as the marital relationship. Marriage stands alone in this case. In Proverbs 18, 4, it says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, but it is not closer than a wife or closer than a husband. No human relationship was intended to be this intimate, and none ever should be without creating catastrophe in our lives. Now, uh, let me read you a really great quote from Charles Swindoll as he uh, was writing a commentary, walking into this portion of Ephesians. He has this to say about the potential controversy of the next section of Ephesians. And since we like controversy, you'll all pay attention to this quote. Some section, some sections of scripture resemble minefields full of explosives rather than treasure chests full of truth. You find yourself reading into a powerful chapter like Ephesians 5 and suddenly come across several topics that can ignite explosive responses. When read in the light of progressive 21st century norms, some of the ideas in these sections sound old-fashioned to some, quaint to others, and downright ridiculous or even dangerous to a few. Frankly, when it comes to reading this section of Scripture... It feels like I'm sailing into precarious waters like those unnamed seas on ancient faded maps marked only with a bold three-word warning, here be dragons. Why is this area so dangerous? Because here Paul deals with some of the most challenging of all relationships on earth. They are just filled with conflict and a wide range of emotions, but the truth is that those alleged dragons that are infesting this section live only in our imaginations, When we interpret these passages in their biblical and historical context, we'll find that their truths transcend culture, personal preference, and human wisdom. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, 21 through 24 today, starting in verse 21, Uh, and I'm going to give you just a couple things really quickly, and then we're going to take about 20 minutes to talk about the foundation of a couple doctrinal things in the Bible that we're going to have to establish in order to actually talk about practical application. So in verse 21, it says this, and we're finishing up a section uh, in where Paul has actually talked about what it looks like uh, to apply this doctrine that we've been uh, going through all in the first four chapters. And he ends with this statement and I want to start with this statement before we move into the next one. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what uh, I want to start with is this, that all of this that we're going to talk about today is ab- about voluntarily submitting to one another. And, and the quote would be this, submission provides evidence that we have spirit-controlled relationships. Submission provides evidence that we have spirit controlled relationships it's going to go on to say the favorite verse of every wife in every church wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands you see how this is going to not be controversial at all right Excellent. So two halves today to today's sermon. The first, we're going to take a look at historical and cultural abuses of this scripture. I'm going to step back for just a minute and we're going to look at the doctrinal implications of men and women being unique to one another. And in the second half of this, we're going to take a look specifically at what this text is saying about your home, your marriage, and you, whether you're married or single. So, uh, in order to explain the first part of this, uh, we have a diagram that I want you to look at. I'm going to see how easy this is going to be to see for you. Okay, I might have to explain this because I realize that's a lot of shades of gray. Not 50, but a lot. Um, (laughs) We've got four spheres up here. Feminism, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and patriarchy. And I'm going to explain those uh, because there's a lot of syllables that I just used. And this is really taking a look at the biblical doctrine of the role of men and women in the Bible and in the church. And so these four terms actually are uh, groupings of. Uh, doctrinal perspectives. Now, what you're going to notice at the top, it says biblical Christianity, but the line for biblical Christianity does not go all the way over because at the extremes of the spectrum of these these perspectives, we get outside of biblical Christianity entirely. And so if we get too far over here to the left in feminism, there's a large portion of uh, perspective in this camp of feminism that is not biblical Christianity whatsoever because it's not biblical. Biblical whatsoever. And if you get on the other extreme and you get too far over on the patriarchy side, you're gonna find the same problem that uh, as you continue to move over here to the right, you're gonna be well outside the scope and boundary of the Bible. And everything about our stance today that I'm gonna speak about and where we land in this diagram is going to be about the Bible. Because we believe, and we, we have to start here because we always start here and we always end here. We believe. As a church, as an elder board, as a pastor, I believe, we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. It's perfect and without error. Therefore, when the Bible and I disagree, I'm wrong. Do you hear that? So, So I believe that I have to read the Bible to understand, not read the Bible to find examples to prove my point. It's a really big deal. You don't come up with a perspective, come up with an idea, come up with an opinion and then go find things that might prove your point. Okay. When you do that, you will inevitably find yourself using the Bible out of context. You will inevitably find yourself in really historically. This is one of the worst sins that you can commit is to take the Bible. God's word. Use it out of context to prove your point. People took the Bible and they defended chattel slavery in the South using the Bible. People took the Bible and they defended the Nazi regime and putting Jews in internment and in camps and killing them using the Bible. You you don't get to take the Bible to prove your point and use it out of context. We read the Bible and it shapes us. Make sense? It shapes my opinion of this. My opinion of this right here is different until I open the scripture and read it and go, oh, I guess I can't believe what I want to believe. That's the way it works. All right. So the extremes of feminism and patriarchy are actually incredibly unbiblical. And the extreme of patriarchy, you can have misogyny and all kinds of of evil things that have occurred because of male domination and and, and all well outside of any biblical precept. And at the far extreme of feminism, you can have some of these ideas of gender fluidity and and men don't matter and there should be nothing masculine in the world because it's toxic and, and, and oppressive. Biblical patriarchy will have some good things in it, but it will have an overemphasis of some things, and that will create a real underdevelopment in the church and in the home, and will end up distorting the way God designed us, and it will begin to cause problems for us. And the same thing happens in feminism. There are some really good things in feminism, but there's an overemphasis that leads to an underdevelopment that stops us from seeing and participating in God's design. God's design was intended for us to flourish, We don't, I want to be really clear here about God's design, because we're going to be talking about God's design, God's design for men and women, God's design for the the marital relationship, God's design for the family relationship, This this whole series is going to be about God's design. It's really important to understand God's design and not use a different standard. We don't grade fish on how well they climb trees, Cause they weren't designed for that. And so if you begin to overemphasize the th- something that you weren't designed for, that's outside of God's design, it's going to leave you frustrated and wanting. So let me just see if I can explain each of these four uh, camps really quickly so you understand. And this is important. We're going to get to why this is so important. Some of this is because I believe it is necessary for us as a church to understand this topic and where we come from from Scripture. But also one of the big reasons we're talking about today in Ephesians is some of the distortions of Scripture. Actually, we're going to cover a verse that is oftentimes distorted in Scripture. And so I want to make sure I cover why. And, And I also believe that a lot of the practical application we're going to talk about in the marital relationship today and for wives and husbands and for single people all come from a better understanding of what the Bible says about the uniqueness of men and women. So here's feminism. I'll give you a quote. This is, uh, this is Catherine Bushnell, who's a a noted feminist. This is what she says. This is about uh, basically the great mistake that's made is This is the the woman question. This is what she calls it, the woman question. She says, men ask this, is it prudent to allow women to do thus and so? Men ask themselves this at every step of a woman's progress. The only question that should be asked is, does justice demand this? If so, let justice be done, though the heavens fall, and anything short of justice is mere mischief-making. What is she saying? There are no limitations on the equality and equity uh, and, and no differences between men and women unless justice demands it and anything beyond justice is men meddling. Let me give you a quote uh, that I could, uh, maybe a better, hopefully charitable quote to try to, to sum up where feminism would stand from a perspective. A Christian feminist, so not, not outside the boundaries of that, that diagram, but a Christian feminist, is someone who seeks to define and defend the equal rights of women in all spheres of life, whether that's socially, economically, politically, or spiritually. I think that's fair. I think that's a very charitable quote because what this doesn't mention is the violence by which most feminists view masculinity. Most feminists view many facets or all facets of masculinity as negative and would view anything that is open to men but, but not open to women as hostile that leads to oppression. Christian feminism, not secular feminism, Christian feminism is rooted in a couple biblical texts, about three. But there aren't a lot of them, and it's primarily because most, 80 90% of biblical Christian feminists, view the Bible with a lot of skepticism and doubt. So the, the theological argument for a Christian feminist, actually one of the main texts comes from Genesis 1, 27 and 28. That says this. So God created, this is the creation story. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the argument for a Christian feminist is that God created men and women equal in the garden before the sin, before sin entered the world, before the fall, men and women were were completely uh, equal. Therefore, any role distinction is about the oppression of women for their subjugation by the tyranny of men. Now, most crimin, uh, Christian feminists will just exclude or ignore most other biblical texts about men and women in that distinction because most of them, not all, but most of them will argue that the Bible was written by men for men to protect the power of men. Therefore, they will reject it or they will look at it with great skepticism. This tends, in the, in the feministic camp, this tends to lead most Christian feminists to land far left on many social issues. So, so, marriage is not reserved for a man and a woman. Gender is, is not defined by God, it's fluid. Women can have abortions whenever they want, et cetera. Why? Because they question the Bible, they question the validity of it. Who wrote this thing? Who are they trying to protect? Remember, though, that even in the extremes that I've mentioned that we're walking through, there are actually some really good things, even in those extremes. It's usually just an overemphasis that creates the distortion. So here's where where I would agree, and we, we as a church would agree with Christian feminists. We are both men and women created in the image of God. Therefore, we have dignity, value, and worth. I would wholeheartedly affirm that. But there's an overemphasis here. That creates an extreme. There's also an overemphasis in the opposite side of this spectrum in patriarchy. So let me read you a quote. Now, I need to be, I'm going to talk about patriarchy. I'm going to read you a quote. Look at me real quick. This is a quote. Not my words. We good? Okay. This is... This is Martin Luther. He's considered one of the fathers of the church, the fathers of the Reformation. Martin Luther. Men, i do this with a straight face. (laughs) Men have broad and large chests and small narrow hips and have more understanding than women who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips. To the end, they should remain at home, sit still, keep house, and bear and bring up children. Martin Luther, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you could say that terrible statements like that, and this this is a terrible statement. I just, if, if you have read, the, this is a terrible statement. Terrible statements like that have led to a number of distorted views of women in the church. Not just the American church, but historically in the church. See, you, patriarchs, believe some some good things. Patriarchs believe that God is masculine, that it, he is a he. They're right, Jesus was a he. His name was Jesus, not Jesse, or something. Jesus, no, Je- Jesus, masculine. The, 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 the patriarchs would believe that, that family is the center of all society, and that the breakdown of the family and the home will lead to the destruction of the society. And that's actually very true, we believe that too. In fact, I think you could statistically prove that. But patriarchs will go further than that and, and even Christian patriarchs will take a verse like First Corinthians eleven three that every woman needs to be under the authority of a man and they, they will interpret that to mean every woman needs to be under the authority of a man at all times in her life, from the time she's born till the time she dies. And that, and that women should have vastly different roles in the world than men. So they'll take 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 that says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. And they will turn that into this idea that a woman does not have enough authority to live her life on her own outside the headship of a man at all points in her life. And that will then lead them down this distortion and overemphasis of the uniqueness of the roles into this idea that nowhere in the world should there not be a distinction in roles between men and women. Phil Lancaster uh, would fall into this Christian patriarchal uh, camp. And his quote sounds like this, again, a quote the God ordained and proper sphere of dominion for a wife is the household and that which is connected with the home. While unmarried women may have more flexibility, it is not the ordinary, listen to this, and fitting role of women to work alongside men as their functional equals in the public spheres of dominion. What have we done? We've taken a verse and then we've said, we're going to apply this to every possible area in the world. And so, so we've overemphasized something and we've taken it outside the boundaries of where scripture would take it and add added extra biblical mandates to it. Do you see that, that both of these camps, no one would say feminists are the same as patriarchs, but do you see what they're doing the same things? In Christian feminism, there's this overemphasis on women and the neglect of men. Men are to be questioned. They are not to be trusted. They're going to use their power to oppress and destroy. And then those on the patriarchy side of things will say, women can't be trusted. Women just need to stay at home and take care of the babies. And and I'm not slandering at all the call of a stay-at-home mom. I think that's a beautiful gift, but that's not the only gift that women have been given. So let's get into the, the, the camp right in the middle. There's two camps that most of us can't pronounce, egalitarian and complementarian. Egalitarians believe in equality of roles. So now egalitarians will argue this, a fully authoritative Bible supports the freedom of women under Christ without male supervision to follow their God given callings and special gifts of the spirit, including the leadership ministries of elder and lead teacher. If you're like, well, that sounds a little bit like Christian feminism. There are massive differences between Christian feminism and egalitarian. And here's the major one. Egalitarians want to argue from the Bible. That's a good thing. We will agree with that all day long, because we want to argue and learn from the Bible as well. Egalitarians are not scared of difficult texts, so they don't do what largely happens in feminist camps, where they take a difficult text that would be hard to explain and match with their opinion and just throw it out and say, well, it's not gonna, that's not a trustworthy verse. They will deal with difficult verses, because they believe the Bible is authoritative. So uh, largely what egalitarians are gonna do is they're gonna go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which by the way, every campus that the studies of the Bible about this is gonna spend a lot of time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, they're gonna argue that the whole point of Genesis 1 and 2 and some of the verses that we read earlier is about oneness, this idea of oneness, not about differences, but rather about them being the same. And they're gonna say, listen, the whole point of the creative order is that man and woman were created as one. And so they're gonna they're gonna fly through like Galatians 3 in the New Testament, and they're gonna point out like when Paul's talking about how there's no male and there's no female and you're all one in Jesus Christ, and that ties back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the, the oneness, and they're gonna they're gonna look at Genesis 3:16, which is a key text in understanding this. And they're gonna look at that, and this is this is the curse. That Jesus is the penalty that we see God give Adam and Eve when he cast them out of the garden. And this is what he says to the woman. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Here it is. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Depending... On the text you read, it'll say your desire will be for your husband, as if you're going to want the authority, but he's going to rule over you. And what egalitarians are going to say is they're going to say, listen, before sin, there was no male headship. There was no difference in role between Adam and Eve. It's only because of sin and the curse that we have this distinction. And when Jesus comes, he sets that back to equal again. That's why you get Galatians 3.16. So they're going to point to the Bible to prove their point. So when they get to Galatians uh, 3.28, there's n- neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That, that, that's going to be the argument, the primary text argument for egalitarians, oneness. They argue that headship is part of the fall. And they'll also argue very rightly about a number of things in the Bible that, that often we miss. They're going to argue about the testimony of women in the Bible. They're going to look at the Old Testament and they're going to say, Esther was instrumental in protecting God's people. Deborah served as a judge, which was the highest office in the land next to prophet and priest. They're going to look at it and say there were prophets such as Miriam and Huldah. In the New Testament, they're going to look at the women who were active in the life of church. In 1 Corinthians 11, women serve in prayer and prophesying in the public gathering. In Philippians 4, we have women evangelists. In Acts 12, women are leading house churches. In Romans 16, we read of Priscilla, who was singled out by Paul as his fellow worker in Christ Jesus. These are egalitarian arguments, and they're from Scripture. And so we look at them and go, those are good, those are worthy arguments. Now, I don't land, and our church does not land in the egalitarian camp. We land in the complementarian camp, because I believe that men and women are, and this is the key phrase for today when you talk about the role of men and women, men and women are distinct yet dependent. We are distinct yet dependent, and where in? a is going to argue that certain verses in the Bible, I'm going to push back on some of those same verses. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11:3, 3, when they begin to argue that headship, how do, how do they argue that sort of difficult text of it saying headship? They're, well, they're going to say headship doesn't actually mean authority. It means source because the woman was created from Adam. They're going to say that's talking about a creation from Adam, not that he's, he is an authority and we're going to talk about that again today in just a minute because that term headship is in our verse today. So we're going to look at that in just a, a minute. Um, but <laughs> excuse me. Uh, but many of the common arguments for egalitarians, about the verses that are prohibitive of, for women doing certain things or holding certain offices in the Bible. And egalitarian is going to argue that those were cultural problems that were distinct to a specific church. And so when Paul is writing these things, he's not writing them broadly for all churches, he's writing them for one church. So when he writes to Corinth, he's writing for the church in Corinth. And when he's writing the, the, in Ephesians, he's only writing for the church in Ephesus because of what was going on in Ephesus. And they will explain away many of those verses as just localized problem in that specific church in time. And I will just show you, I'm not going to go through an exhaustive thing. We could probably write a 60-page paper on the exegesis of these verses and why they mean different things and, and our disagreement there. But let me, just, let me just say a couple things here. The preeminent text for me that pushes back against this idea, that the idea of headship, of a man in the marital relationship, this idea that there is a headship at all, and that it, it must, it actually means source and it doesn't mean authority, and we'll, we'll explain why, uh, doesn't make sense. And that, that, that The idea of um, the man ruling over the woman is only part of the curse, and it was only because of sin, and it didn't exist before sin came into the world, uh, is a fallacy. And I'm going to show it to you in the Bible really quickly. It's the same, it's actually some of the same problems we have with work. You know, work is part of the curse, but work is, part of the curse as being hard. Work existed before the curse. Before sin entered the world, work existed, but it was good. What the curse ha- uh, made when sin entered the world is not that it, it, work entered the world, it just made work frustratingly hard. Amen? Some of you have had some frustratingly hard work? Thanks, Ab and Eve. When you get to heaven, you see Adam be like, bruh. <laughs> really? Okay. One of the the, the primary problems with this idea that it was sin that created the headship and this authority issue is Genesis 3, 8 through 13 is actually the story right after uh, Eve eats the apple and she gives it to Adam and he eats the apple. And then, do you remember the story? They realize they're naked and then Jesus comes to walk with them and they go hide, which always makes me laugh because I always think of like a little two-year-old playing hide and go seek that just sticks their head in the couch and their butt sticking up in the air and they're like, you can't find me. It's Jesus. He knows where you're at. Also, he's seen you naked. Okay. So they're hiding, right? Turn to Genesis 3, verse 8. They're hiding. Jesus comes. He knows what's happened. Who does he ask for? Adam or Eve? Eve eats the apple. Why doesn't he ask for Eve? Why does he go, Adam? Adam, where are you? Come answer, headship. And if you don't believe me, we turn to Romans five twelve, and Paul backs this up when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What is he saying? Who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Adam. Adam did, because God gave him a command to steward and care for the garden and Eve, and he failed. He failed. It's on his shoulders. And we're going to talk about that in today's text. Because the authority that we we read about in the Bible is not about domineering. It's about responsibility. Here's what we believe about the distinction of men and women, including their roles. And then I'll just move on. I read you a great quote from a guy named Sam Storm. Um, he's written a lot about this, has a blog, just some, some real phenomenal stuff. But I want to read you this quote because this quote will articulate where our church and where I personally stand when it comes to complementarianism. And I just want you to hear the elegance of this quote and how well he puts this. So here, I'll, I'll read this slowly. Men and women are together created in the divine image and are therefore equal before God as persons possessing the same moral dignity and value and have equal access to God through faith in Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to empower them for ministry in the local church and beyond. Therefore, women are to be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry in service to the body of Christ and through teaching in ways that are consistent with the word of God. This principle of male headship should not be confused with, nor given any hint of domineering control rather. It is to be loving, tender and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. The elders pastors of each local church have been granted authority under the headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight and to teach, preach the word of God to the corporate assembly for the building up of the body. Complementarians believe that the office of elder pastor is restricted to men by scripture. There's the distinction from a church standpoint. And that distinction is only the office of elder pastor. Pastor, Now, even inside the complementarian bubble that we were in, there's nuanced positions that are not the same. In our elder room, even though we're all complementarian, we have different perspectives inside that view that are in different areas, and we come to agreement behind closed doors after long conversations about the Bible. But we're all in that bubble. Men and women are distinct from one another, but dependent on one another. That's my summary of that whole section. We have, I can say a lot about church roles and a lot about other things, but I do not have the time. So I'm moving on. All right. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let me talk about how this text and the idea of biblical roles impacts the home. There is a divinely given order in the marriage relationship. That's what we're reading about. This idea of headship is a divinely given order. Number one, it comes from God. I want you to see that. This has not come from man. This comes from God. This is directly out of the text. Number two, it is not the result of sin. We don't don't hear about male headship because of sin. Male headship existed before sin. Number three, it is necessary for our benefit. We live by God's design. And number four, it mimics the Trinity and the church. It mimics the Trinity and the Jesus church relationship. So we see this modeled for us as well. Many of the problems, quote, many of the problems in, a Christian, in Christian marriages come from either an ignorance of or a cavalier disregard for the scriptural teachings on the roles of men and women in marriage. Many Christians have adopted the ego-centered canon of self-fulfillment as the ground for their union. Marriage is seen more as an alliance to promote personal growth rather than a lifelong commitment to mutual love and service. Thus, when difficulties arise, Christian men and women simply step out of the situation much as one does from a change of clothes. What is needed today is a clear understanding of and a returning to the hostful of scripture, meaning the house table. There is nothing degrading or dehumanizing about the ordered equality of these domestic instructions. Rather, they are key to marital elevation All right, so what does your favorite verse, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, mean? Does it mean she has to make me a sandwich? So you're all waiting for the answer, right? Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that your husband is the Lord. I'm gonna be really clear. It never means that the wife would do something unscriptural. We all serve, men and women, God first. We have a very similar type of command given in another part of scripture about submitting to the government. It does not mean that submitting to the government means that you do something unscriptural. We follow God first. So when it comes to submitting to your husband, it does not mean that if your husband says to do something unscriptural or wants to do something unscriptural, that you need to submit to that authority. That is absolutely not accurate. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now, I told you there was a controversy about this word, head of the wife, because what happens is in the egalitarian camps of people that would argue against the idea that there is this headship, they take the word in Greek for head, which is uh, used here is kafale, K-E-P-H-A-L-E, and they say that doesn't really mean authority. What it really means is source, and it's really just... Looking back at the garden and saying the woman, they took the rib out of Adam so that he was the source of the woman. Here's the problem. It doesn't ever mean that in Greek. It'd be a wonderfully logical argument if it were true. But it's not. Wayne Grudem, uh, who writes commentaries, did an exhaustive study of this word in ancient Greek, went through all classical Greek literature, and then went through non classical Greek references from uh, Philo, from Josephus, from the Apostolic Fathers, from the Epistle of Aristus, and more. 2,336 instances of the word kephale. Not one time was it ever used to mean source, it always meant authority. So, again, it's a great argument, it's just not true. It means authority, and we have to wrestle with that. We have to deal with the tension of that, because when I disagree with the Bible, I'm wrong. So if we start back at verse 21, and we look at this. I wanted to start at verse 21, so you can see where this is coming from. Before we get to wives, submit to your husbands. You get verse 21, which says what? Submit to one another. Because the way that we live out the Christian walk, which is what this whole text has been about, all of this is about how do I live out pursuit of Christ? What does it look like now that I've been saved to follow Jesus? The way that we live out this walk is, ready for this, voluntary submission. Not forced submission, voluntary submission to one another. Wives do this with their husbands. Not all men, single women do not, do not need to submit to men. Wives, do not need to submit to all men. The call is to their husband. Even before you're married, you could be engaged, and this does not apply yet. This is almost the office of husband and the office of wife. It is the official role in the marital relationship when two flesh become one flesh? Why? Why this headship? Why this submission? Here's the... the, I I want to have you... I want to accurately describe what should be the weight of responsibility for the husband. I think it'll make more sense. The husband in a marital relationship... And, and father in a relationship where there are children involved is responsible for the sins of the entire family. The husband is responsible for the sins of his wife. The husband is responsible for the sins of his children under his roof. Responsible for, will answer for, And I'm not gonna talk a lot about the role of the husband today because we have some more verses coming next week and we're gonna cover some of this in real detail next week for men. I'll give you just a sliver for men and then we're gonna talk about wives today and husbands next week. But there are these two extremes that Pastor Vance is gonna talk about, the domineering husband and the passive husband. And both of them are common distortions of husbands. And neither mirrors Jesus. Therefore, when people are doing some of this stuff, they're going to do stuff that cannot be submitted to because it's unscriptural and it is sinful behavior. I just submit to you that the most common problem in American churches is not wives not submitting. It's that our wives are wives of passive men. And there's nothing to even submit to. Because there's men in our houses and in our churches that aren't leading spiritually at all. It's passivity. Our wives, there are, I think there are many Christian wives that would love to submit if there was anything to submit to. But we've been passive. And they can't even follow this command because we're too spiritually weak and too spiritually passive and we don't even want the responsibility. And we pass it off and call it their responsibility. And the only time we would bring up this verse is if we wanted them to make us a sandwich. And that's a problem. And the other extreme is domineering. Jesus is the standard. How many decisions did Jesus make for his own benefit? None. He was the ultimate authority. He made decisions without asking anyone's opinion, but how many did he make for himself? Zero. That's the standard, men. It's a servant leader in your home. You may have the authority, but you have the authority so that you can serve. It means making the best decision for your family, not you. Servant leader is not about being passive, it's about you making sacrificial decisions from a reverent place of conviction. Now, practically, what does this mean? Practically, in my life, I don't make decisions without my wife. Are you crazy? Why would I do that? Let's talk about wives for a few minutes. This is, this is what I wanted to get to because this is where the verse really hits home about submitting to your husband. I think there are two distortions for wives in the home. One is usurpation. Wow. That is a hard word to say versus servility usurping versus servile. These are the two extremes for wives Wife, you are called to follow Jesus. You are called to be obedient to God. You are equal in value as an image bearer of Christ and you are called to the same standard of righteousness and holiness as your your husband. What's different? In the role of wife, you partner with your husband side by side, not behind him, not beneath him. But the Bible has ordered it this way. It ordered your intent, intentionally ordered your husband to bear the full weight of responsibility of imaging Christ to your family. It's his responsibility. Now, how does that get distorted in two ways? Usurping wives wanting to usurp the authority of the husband. Where do we see this? All the way back at the curse. Go all the way back to Genesis 3. The curse for the woman is you will desire for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the curse. And we see that play out in the marital relationship all the time. Let me just ask you this, married people, and please do not raise your hand, Lord. <laughs> married people you ever felt like you're talking to your spouse and you're explaining something really, really, really well, and they are just not getting it. And you're like, I could not explain this any better. And they're like, yeah, yeah. and there's total misunderstanding. And you're just at a, a conflict, just a fight over it. And you're like, I can't explain this any better. I, I think that is a byproduct of the fall. I think it's part of the curse is that there's going to be some difficulty here. There's going to be some sinfulness here that has just almost made it hard in the same way that work became hard and it shouldn't have been. You are absolutely not called to be the spiritual authority in your house. And listen, many women have had to become the spiritual authority in their home because their husband refused. That's on you men. But if your husband is attempting to lead wife, your job is to support him. And I'm gonna explain from the garden where we see that. And, and the other thing, you weren't called to be so passive, so servile, so submissive that you allowed your husband to just be off the rails scripturally and not reel him in, ladies. Quietly, gently, privately reel him in. Now, let me just give you an example. Um, if you turn to Genesis 2.18, and I just want you to think about the, the story. Again, we're always in Genesis when we talk about this, but I just think about this story real quick, okay? God's created the earth, and he has Adam stand there, and he brings all of the animals by. Do you remember this story? Some of you watch VeggieTales? Okay, so... Adam's there, and, and God is bringing all the animals by, and as he brings all the animals by, right, he's showing them all the animals, and God's looked at everything. He's looked at the birds, and he's looked at the animals, He says, said, it's good, it's good. He's looked at the ocean, it's good. The sky, oh, it's good. Looked at everything he created. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then you've got this, like, super masculine Adam. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Like, I don't know how you picture Adam, but I kind of picture Adam like on a horseback <laughs> with a big, rugged beard, maybe a Winchester. You know what I mean? Like looking out over rugged mountains. And God looks at Adam in Genesis 2.18. He looks at Adam and he goes, oh, it's not good. This is not, this is, this is not going to do, guys. We're going to need some help. Amen? Do men need help? And I don't mean help like like making sandwiches. I mean literally help. Like you just can't get it right yourself. And God creates what he describes in Genesis 2.18 as a helper. Now, here, here's the thing, sometimes women hear the word helper or helpmate, depending on the translation, and they bristle. Yeah, I'm no helper. The Hebrew word for helper is the exact same Hebrew word that the Bible will use to describe God coming to aid and help his people. It is not a subservient word. It is the same word that God will use to describe his Holy Spirit when he sends the Holy Spirit. So It's not meant to be this this minuscule thing that's meant to ridicule a woman or to put her down or to put her in some other terrible place. It's, it's, It's meant to say, Adam, and the way he was created, it's not enough. There's some problems here. I don't even think he knows hygiene. You ever had a teenage boy? Dear God. It's not good. And he brings in and creates woman. Does this make sense? It's a quote by Elizabeth Elliot Grant that says, the best thing that a woman can do for her husband is to make it easy for him to do the will of God. Do you hear, do you hear that? Wives, what does submitting mean? It means your husband desperately, we desperately need your help to do the will of God. Does it make sense? I, 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 you don't understand. What the most attractive thing about my wife to me when I met her was her empathy. And I could barely spell the word because I don't know what it means. And she would remember things about people that I didn't even know very well and their birthdays and the types of things that they might like in order to get them a gift. And I didn't even know they had a birthday And I was like, I couldn't remember their name and she's got the date and and things they like and their interests and she's picking out, got gifts for them. And I'm, you know, and and, and they would hurt and she would hurt and they would celebrate and she would celebrate. And I was like, I don't know what any of these feelings are, but they're amazing. And and, and God gave me a wife to just round off all these horribly sharp edges in my life. And if you're looking at me and just being like, well, she didn't do a good job of that. You should have met me 10 years ago. You have no idea. It's a miracle. I mean, the primary role of the wife in the Bible, when you hear this, this word helpmate or helper is not a chore list or a task list at all. That's totally distorted. It's this, are you helping your husband follow God better? Are you helping him live out the vibrant dynamic will of God better? Now, how do you do that? You, you have to do it through submitting. And here's why. Because it never works through nagging. It just doesn't work. I'm not saying you don't do it. I'm not saying sometimes it's not kind of earned. I'm saying it doesn't work. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't convict your husband. You can't transform him, and that's the problem. It's a frustration, is you see changes that need to happen to your husband, and you can't make them, and instead of having faith in the biblical model of how to do this, of being submissive and praying for him and waiting on the Holy Spirit to move and change his heart, you decide you're gonna make it happen. Let me tell you how that works in the Bible. When you decide you're gonna play God, it leads to a lot of distortions of the marital relationship. You aren't the Holy Spirit, you can't convict him, and nagging's not submission, it's not productive, and generally, it's just not helpful, even though it's oftentimes well-deserved. What does this mean practically? Here's what it means practically. My wife and I do not argue in public. We argue, not in public, not in front of our children. Why? Because we want to be one to our kids, and to other people. And when we argue, we're going to go behind closed doors and we're going to have conversations about things. And the fact that my wife is called to submit to me because of her role as wife and my role as husband is not anything I ever bring up to win an argument. Do you hear me? It's not the trump card. You get to the end and she had better reasoning than you did, so you just reach in your back pocket and pull out the submit card and like... (laughs) Thought you got that one, didn't you? (laughs) If that verse is ever mentioned, it is mentioned in private when we cannot reach an agreement over something that is incredibly important that I've reached via conviction through prayer. And I don't know that I've ever had to mention it in 18 years of marriage. Why? Because my my wife's so great at submitting to me? No! No! because it's my job to lead so well that my wife knows Jesus better because of me. That's the standard. That's the standard. And I've I've told this to many men in marriage counseling before, and I'm gonna tell it to you now, this is the nugget you get to take home men for today because next week is about you. Everybody, every guy I know is always in the like, I wanna fight for my family. And I'm like, you don't know what that means. You think fight means you get to throw punches. But in the servant leadership role, you fight by putting your hands behind your back and taking punches. Because that's how Jesus fought. And he's your example. So if you want to get something done in your home and you have conflict and you're sitting with your spouse trying to figure it out, guess what you get to do? You get to lose a lot of battles so you can win the war. You're going to find concessions of non-critical things that you're willing to give up even though you don't like them because you were called to win the war. And you're going to do that by taking punches oftentimes and responding well. And so if through conviction you come to a, 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 a decision that needs to be made for the good of the family, you may have to compromise other things to get that thing And that's fine because it's on you. Someday, this this drives me absolutely bonkers. Someday I am going to stand in front of Jesus. And I know I'm saved. And I know that he's died for my sins. But someday I'm going to stand in front of him. And he's going to look at me. And he's not going to just talk to me about the things where I have failed in my own personal life. But then he's going to look at my wife. And he's going to begin to recount her failures and her sins as my responsibility. And then he's going to go through child by child under my roof. And those will all be on my shoulders because of how well I stewarded them. So, I better have the priorities right. Because that's the biblical model. So, that's why you're not going to find domineering in the biblical model for men and women. It doesn't even exist. We added that inappropriately. Wives, how do you change your husband? You don't. You model Jesus to him, you pray for him. You affirm him, you, con- you correct him gently and privately whenever it's needed, gently and privately, gently and privately whenever it's needed, and you submit to his convictions when they are not unbiblical. I'll say it again. You submit to his convictions when they are not unbiblical. So since I said this was the title, I have to answer the question, do you have to make him a sandwich? The only biblical standard for having to make him a sandwich is verse 21, where it says to submit to one another. So you have to make him a sandwich as much as he has to make you a sandwich. So I hope you're both really good at making sandwiches. (laughs) There's your answer, YouTube. I spent a lot of time today, uh, and rightly so, on the marriage relationship, because this is wives and husbands, but I do want to just, for a minute, talk about the implications of the doctrinal foundation here on single men and women. So just very briefly, (laughs) wow. (laughs) Women, single women, you are fully free to pursue Jesus and ministry and God's will. Like, I, I... Just on the off chance that you think that marriage might be something in your future, single ladies, let me just just give you some encouragement, some advice. Right now, as, as a single woman, be bold in your discipleship. Like, be fervent in your pursuit and faith in God right now. And here's why. It will chase away boys, and it will only attract men. And you don't need any boys in your life. Because I just want you to consider that once you're married, the Bible is going to say that you're going to submit to your husband. So do you understand why people who love you and care for you a great deal really care about who you're attracted to and who you want to date? We don't want you dating any boys. Because we don't want to later deal with the fact that you were called to submit to that boy. So it matters who you date, who you're attracted to, and who you marry. Be bold in your discipleship. Who wants to marry a bo- Who wants to submit to an idiot, to a fool, to a domineering leader, or a passive one? You're laying the groundwork right now in your pursuit of Christ before you ever get married or ever start dating, by how you build your faith. What What, what Jesus looks like to you now. Be serious. Listen. Be Be so filled with the Spirit and so studied in the Word that all of the boys in the yard are intimidated. You don't need a boy, you need a man. If you want to be married, you don't need a man. And you certainly don't want a passive boy or an ignorant, domineering fool. Single men. For most of us as single men, our sex drive keeps fueling an urgency that our spiritual maturity isn't ready for. I wasn't ready. hear me on this and we're going to get to the sex talk in week three. It's going to be a blast making friends. <laughs> if you can't stop sleeping with women because of your lack of self-control, if you can't put accountability around you to deal with porn and lust, marriage is not going to suddenly fix these problems. Do not be deceived. Marriage is a responsibility unlike anything else. For all, all of you, single men and women, who have an overwhelmingly emotional desire to to, to be married that it feels like you would suddenly uh, fix all of these issues if you got married, I just want to tell you that's a red flag. Like you are idolizing marriage if you think that. That's not how it works. Getting married will not fix you. It will accentuate and highlight the selfishness in your life. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not a fix. So what's your takeaway today after I went way too long? Takeaway number one, Pastor Daniel talks too much. Here's the takeaway. God's design is beautiful and it's perfect. And in homes where this model is followed, families thrive. Every single one of us has a tendency, every single one of us has a tendency to distort the balance of God's design. And that distortion is sin and it's caused by sin. So, So sin will cause you to distort how this is supposed to work. And the more it's distorted, the more sinful your life and your relationship becomes. So here's all I want to offer you today as we start this series and we kick it off. In my experience, every time we talk about relationships in marriage in the church, when we open the Bible and we really begin to dive into this, I get like five times the increase in marriage counseling requests. And I think that's actually a great thing. Like I think we, we have prepared for this guys. We, we wrote a 30 day marriage devotion for you and your spouse. You can pick it up for free. We have it in an electronic copy on our website and we have it in print. We bought a 30-day single devotional for men or women. Like we want you to walk out of here and we want you to get that, We want you to commit to reading that with your spouse or by yourself or in a small group and, and work on this. And listen, we, we called and we made sure we had as many possible marriage counselors ready for this series. Because when you kick the beehive, you better be ready for the bees. We have been planning and, and now have public a link to sign up for a marriage conference, a two-day conference. And you could, you could see about it in the lobby where we're bringing in some, uh, Bill and Pam Farrell from out of town, uh, best-selling authors. Uh, first book sold 2 million copies and they're, they're going to do a two-day conference on marriage. I'm working this thing out. I'm getting better at it, I'm improving it. Men, are you leading spiritually? through humility and sacrifice teaching and leading your wife and your children biblically have you made the things of God a priority or are you waiting for your wife to do it wives in frustration in your marriage have you leaned into either extreme are you usurping authority because you're you think your husband won't or isn't leading have you become passive instead of urging him toward his calling to lead Have you given up? Is your marriage just not thriving? Here's the good news. There is hope in Christ. There is so great hope in Christ. If you're single, are you struggling with being single? Are you doubting God's plan in your life? Today, as we end, we're gonna just play some music and I wanna give you an opportunity, you and your spouse or you by yourself or whomever is here with you today, no matter your situation, good, bad, or otherwise, I just want you to come and lay your burden down at the altar. Just come and pray together. Put your marriage in front of God. Recommit your relationship, whether in the marital relationship or if you're single, recommit your relationship to the Lord. Give it over to him, it's not yours, it's his. And in your marriage, husband and wife, You were called to steward that relationship and put God at the center of it. You move as the Lord leads you.